Welcome to the New Life Podcast, a ministry of New Life Presbyterian Church in Ithaca, New York. Today we have this week's sermon preached by Tim LaCroix, our senior pastor. Join us for worship each week at 10 o'clock at 950 Danby Road, Ithaca, New York. You can also visit us on our website, www.newlifeithaca.org. Now here's this week's sermon. A reading of the Holy Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Would you please stand if you're able? Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I was reading an article this week, and the, 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 the name of the article was Finding Hay in a Haystack. And uh, I did not misspeak. It was not titled Finding a Needle in a Haystack. It was titled Finding Hay in a Haystack. And what it discussed is this mathematical, I don't know if you call it a principle or or just an idea, that math is really good at finding anomalous things, but it's not very good at finding uh, things that are very common. And when I read that, I'm like, what what in the world does that mean? Like finding or describing things that sort of stick out. Uh, but not things that are very common. What was meant by this, as I read the article and was intrigued by it, was if you consider a number line, so all the numbers that exist, uh, and, and hopefully we remember back to school, if we, if we're not, if we, ha- if we don't study mathematics uh, to what a number line is, uh, there are an infinite amount of numbers, right? There's an infinite amount of numbers, and actually there's also an infinite amount of numbers between any two numbers, so if between, for example, 1 and 2, there's an infinite amount of numbers between 1 and 2. There's an infinite amount of numbers between 1 and 1.1, or 1 and 1.01, or 1.001. There's an infinite amount of numbers. And many of these numbers are irrational. That doesn't mean the numbers can't be reasoned with. It means they, uh, the numbers cannot be expressed as a fraction. You know, they are irrational. They repeat. If you were to have them in your calculator, they would repeat on and on and on and on forever. And what this article was pointing out is that of these irrational numbers, which are hard to grasp because we can't express them in finite terms, 
they overwhelm the numbers that are rational, that are either integers, one, two, three, four, five, and six, the numbers that we are familiar with, or the numbers that we can express in fractions. In other words, they do have a finite expression. The, the irrational numbers overwhelm the number line such that, in essence, or I guess in, in, in almost in essence, the, the, the rational numbers don't exist because they're overwhelmed with the irrational. And the point was is that math... Uh, is good at finding these very, very rare numbers and describing these rare numbers like one and two and one half and so forth. Uh, but how, how can we describe the infinite? How can you actually describe or define a number that repeats forever? It's, you really can't do it. You can approximate it or you can make a symbol for it, but it, it, really, is, it, really, is, uh, it really is hard to do. In, in the text today, oh, oh, and by the way, they called that finding hay in a haystack because it's, although the, the, the common saying finding needle in a haystack sounds like a very, very hard task, it's actually possible to find a needle in a haystack. And especially if you were to employ a, a strong metal detector, you could find a needle in a haystack, the thing that sticks out. But what about finding a, one particular piece of straw in a stack of hay? That is very difficult, and that's what... Uh, the the article was describing. Today, we have described for us an instance of finding hay in a haystack. We we find an instance of the infinite being discovered and being revealed, uh, but nobody saw it. You know, as we as we look at this story, we find this this child that is born and and that appears and. And no one knows. Of all the children in the world, this child does not stick out. Uh, this child does is, is not have anything particularly exemplary. Uh, and, and what we find is that, that God himself, or the, the infinite, to, to stick to the, the terms we've been using, the infinite has to reveal to the finite the existence of the infinite. And so we find that these, these people that are from foreign places are, are shown a revelation of the infinite and are given the pathway to discover the infinite. As we look at this text today, I want to draw out three things, uh, three things for us today. The f- and the first is this. The infinite cannot be discovered. It has to be revealed. The infinite cannot be discovered. It has to be revealed. This is surely one of the points of this story is that God reveals himself because God cannot be discovered. This was Paul's point when he spoke to the, the people of Athens in Acts 17 at the Areopagus on Mars Hill. If you recall that story, I'll just tell you a little bit about it for a refresher. Paul was in Athens and he was amongst the greatest philosophers and thinkers of the world. And he was invited to go speak to them. So he went up on Mars Hill, the Apostle Paul, and was speaking uh, to the Athenians. And he noticed that they had a shrine to an unknown God. And he spoke to them about this unknown God. The, The God that they were searching for, the God they were striving for, but could not discover. Uh, St. Augustine said, of all of all the ancient philosophers and thinkers and religions, the Greeks had come the closest to discovering the infinite, but they could not. And Paul stood up on Mars Hill and said, what you worship is unknown, I declare to you. And he told him about Jesus. 
The infinite cannot be discovered. It cannot be known. It has to be revealed. That's certainly part of what's going on in these early chapters of Matthew and Luke. We find that angels are showing up all over the place because people aren't going to recognize the infinite. They cannot fathom the infinite. They cannot discover it. Angels visit Zechariah. Angels visit Mary. Angels visit Joseph. Angels, in other words, uh, if you're going to discover the infinite, it's like someone has to come and slap you across the head and show it to you. That's what's going on uh, in in beginning of Luke, especially, and here in this chapter of Matthew. Heaven opens up. Choirs of angels are singing. This is what it takes to discover the infinite. It has to be revealed to us either directly through these glorious appearances of angels and choirs and light. The wise men have to have it shown to them by a star, by this, by this heavenly atmospheric phenomenon that most certainly was not a star. Uh, you may have heard me talk about this before. Uh, it does not behave like a star. Uh, stars don't move around and settle on top of houses. If they did, they would, we would all be burned up if a star actually did that. Um, it is not a star. Over the centuries, people have sort of tried to guess what this was, and some have proposed a meteor or a comet. But that doesn't work, does it? A meteor just flashes and disappears. We've all seen meteors. Comets, you ever seen a comet? They, they, these sit on the horizon, and they don't move around and settle over houses. And in, in fact, there were other words in the Greek language that could have been used for this. There is a word for comet. There is a word for meteor. It was not used. The word that is used here is aster, which we would commonly think of as star. But in in the ancient Greek, in in the classical Greek, it just means a light or a fire. It came to be called star because of a representation of stars looking like little lights in the sky. This is a nonspecific or general term. And what I usually describe this as is a, a miraculous atmospheric anomaly. But just to be a little more specific, I think this was an angel. An angel shining brightly in the sky. As I said, we know angels of showing up all over the story. We see angels appearing to people. When Jesus is born, the angels appear to the shepherds and guide them in a very similar fashion to go find Jesus. I think this is an angel. An angel appearing in the sky, shining uh, to lead these wise men to Jesus. The infinite has to be revealed. Why were these wise people, they're, called, they're, they're identified as men, who were they and why were they looking? Well, we read some prophecies. Angela read from Isaiah. We read from Psalm 72. There's, there's several prophecies in the Old, Old Testament about this, this coming. There's actually another one that was alluded to in one of the songs called Jacob's Star. This is from the book of Numbers that talks about a star will rise in Jacob. So there's all sorts of allusions and prophecies in the Old Testament to this moment. Um, And so we think of them as kings because the psalm that we read talks about, Isaiah talks about them being kings. We think of them as being from places like uh, Midian and Ephah and Sheba um, because that's what the Old Testament uh, prophecies say. In terms of the language being used here, and I don't, uh, I think that these three wise men are not identified specifically because they stand in for all of the Gentiles. And if you guys need to close a window, you can. You can if you want to close the blinds, if the sun's too bright for you. I just see people squinting uncomfortably, so um, feel free to do that. Um, 
the, uh, I think that these three, three people are not identified specifically because they stand in for all the Gentiles. They stand in for all the nations. But they are called magi, which is a specific term. The only other place in the Bible where this appears, I think, at least one of the more specific places it appears, uh, is in Daniel. And the, 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 the magi or the magus is described as court advisors. And so these were advisors to kings. They weren't kings themselves. Now, certainly to rural Judeans, they would have appeared like kings in, in, in very costly, uh, very, very uh, beautiful uh, clothing and large caravan. The, the Old Testament describes the retinue as covering the hills with camels and all these treasures. It, the, the word here that they, it says they opened up their treasure chests. This is a very large gathering of people. Uh, and it, it, may, it helps us to understand why all of Jerusalem was troubled. It wasn't like these three road-weary travelers kind of snuck in. This was a big deal. They were, far, they were foreign advisor, They were advisors to foreign potentates. And why were they looking for this star? Or why did they respond to it the way they did? Well, another possible example that I think is likely since we already have the allusion to Daniel here. As we know from the story of Daniel, that through various miracles and through the witness and the testimony of Daniel, proclamations were sent out. We can read about this in Daniel. Proclamations were sent out to the entire known world that the God of Israel was the true God. And it, and it seems at least plausible that these, these foreign sages, these wise men, had been uh, evangelized by Daniel. They were Gentile God-fearers. They were looking for the coming of Messiah. The Old Testament is full of prophecies. We read some of them today that in the new covenant, God would reveal himself to the Gentiles. And here we see that the very first revelation is to Gentiles. The infinite reveals the infinite's self to Gentiles who come seeking the infinite. There has to be a revelation, the revelation of a star, of an angel that guides them to come from far, far away to meet the infinite. So the infinite cannot be found. It has to be revealed. The second point is this. We find on Epiphany, we learn in this story that this, this baby is fully God and fully human. The fully God part, I think, is 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 witnessed is more fully by other parts of scripture but i think that there are there are clues in the text that show us that this is more than just a king the beginning of the story that we read it it presents it in sort of a political terms this is political turmoil because there's oh there's another king and herod is sore afraid because there might be a usurper so it's all cast in politics it's all cast in succession of kings and so forth in the nation of Israel. But the second part of it, though, I think goes far beyond politics and actually moves into that this is not just a human king, but a heavenly king. And the reason is, is the, the response of the Magi, the response of the wise men. It says after they have this interaction with Herod and he, he hatches his plot, which we talked about two weeks ago, so we won't cover that again. It says that after they went away, in verse 9, it says they 
the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, we may skip over that little phrase, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, but the repetition of terms is intending to communicate that this is more than just foreign dignitaries paying homage to an earthly king. This is not the response that they would have to meeting a celebrity. This is a response, the, the, most, the greatest joy that a human could experience that is a result of coming in contact with the infinite, with the Almighty. Rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. It's, it's like when the angels around God's throne are saying, Holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew conception, the rep- repetition of words magnifies it exponentially. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This, I think, shows that the wise men, when they finally met the baby, understood that it was more than an earthly king. It was more than an earthly Messiah. This was God incarnate. Their second response, I think, further shows this. It says in verse 11 that they go into the house and they see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped. It's two words. It's, it's a repetition. Two different words, both of which mean worship. To, to prostrate oneself. When you see this word proskuneo in the Greek, it often is translated worship. It literally means to bow down or prostrate oneself, fall on your face. Here, two words for worship are used together to magnify what's going on. Earlier in the chapter, they say, we have come to worship the king. Now, by itself, this could be just, we want to pay homage. But two words together, bow down and worship or worship worship, they're really worshiping. And I think this is a clue that they understood they were worshiping the infinite. They had an encounter with the infinite, that this, this baby was God incarnate, fully God. And of course, the other scriptures that we read, the prophecies of this event, also allude to this, describing the great king in Psalm 72 in uh, uh, terms that are, are reserved for the deity, and in Isaiah and other places. But I think the narrative is telling this, us this as well. But we also see that this, this child is not just God, and this is one of the things the early church wrestled with, is how do we describe the, the incarnation or whatever Jesus Christ was? He's not just fully God, but also fully human. Also fully human. We see this from the circumstances that the wise men find the child. And we've sung about this several times already today. The cradle, root and bear, and so forth. These, these, are, not, uh, these are not circumstances or surroundings that would be fit for a king. And as we've also mentioned in the, the, the worship quote that, uh, that I read to you at the beginning of the service, it's on page three from Peter Christologus about the infinite being contained in a tiny body. Many of the, many of the early fathers reflect on this, and, and it was mentioned uh, by John Chrysostom in our Christmas Eve homily. The, the fact that the one who nourishes everything, the Bible tells us that Jesus sustains the entire universe with his word. 
The one who nourishes everything had to be nourished himself. The nourisher was nourished at his mother's breast. The one who has all power in the universe (coughs) was powerless and had to be subject to other powers and, and so forth. This, is, this, this shows the, 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 the poor estate, as we sang about um, at the beginning of the service, thou who wast rich. The poor estate of this child shows his humanity. He's fully human. He's fully human. Uh, this is shown by the fact later in the story that he has to flee. He's, he's one of us. He suffers with us and he suffers for us. He's in danger of political violence. He's in danger of death. They have to flee to a foreign country as refugees and immigrants and to, a, to another, another place. This, is all, this all is showing that Christ, as the writer of Hebrews says, is like us in every respect except without sin. He's fully human. And I think this is important because only, the only way that we could grasp or fathom the infinite is if it became finite for us. As I was, I was thinking about you know, these numbers that I've been playing with in my head uh, with this uh, sermon, thinking about numbers, uh, there, there are very few irrational numbers that we know about, or that at least that, uh, at least that, that we could, you know, that a lot of people would commonly know. Like, we all know what one is, we all know what two is. But probably the most popular or well-known irrational number is pi, right? Pi, everybody knows what pi is, right? We even have a day. It's, it's uh, March 14th, 314. And, and how do we know this, this number that continues on for infinite, infinity? How do we know about it? How, do we, or how are we able to grasp it? It's because it's become incarnate, essentially. It is represented in finite terms. It has a symbol, pi. It has a, a ratio that we can fathom uh, uh, of a, a, because pi is a, the ratio of the circumference of a circle uh, over its diameter. We understand what a circle is. We understand what a line through the middle of a circle is. So we can approximate pi. And some of us know digits of pi. Like I can go 3.14159, I think 7 is the next one. But some people know many digits of pi. Some people know hundreds of digits. I'm sure, if you looked in the, I'm sure if you looked in the Guinness Book of World Records, you would find the person who knows mo- the most digits of pi. But even computers only approximate it. Does anybody even truly know it? I mean, this is, I'm, not, I'm not a theoretical mathematician. Maybe some of you have thought about these things, but I don't think so. How do we, how do we at least grasp pi? It's because it's incarnate. It's made finite. That's how we know it. The only way that we can grasp infinity is if it is made like us. And that's Jesus. He's fully God and he's fully human. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's experienced everything that we have experienced. He's suffered in every way that we have suffered. He's been tempted as well. And that's how we can come in contact with the infinite is through this finite human being who is fully God and fully human. The third point today is that this story, the story of Epiphany, shows us that Jesus is not just the the infinite made finite, but Jesus is God's answer to the things that we are seeking. 
Jesus is God's answer to the things that we are seeking. In order to explore this point, we're going to take a look at the, the gifts, the three gifts that the wise men bring. Uh, they bring gold, they bring frankincense, and they bring myrrh. And over the years, and if you read a commentary, they'll try to explain or figure out or give their best stab at what these gifts represent. Um, almost everyone agrees that the gold represents Christ's kingship. That seems pretty plain. It's a rich gift for, uh, for, a, an, for, for a king. And so the, the wise men open up their treasure chests and they give him gold. It represents his kingship and indeed his heavenly kingship. But this is not just a king. We read Psalm 72. This is more than just an ordinary king. The, Psalm 72 is about the kingship of God's anointed. We find the gift of frankincense also. What is frankincense? Well, frankincense is something used in incense. But when we look at the scriptures and where frankincense shows up, we find it in two interesting places. We find it in the recipe for the incense that is burned in the holy place in the temple. In other words, it's God's smell. So this sort of speaks to the deity of the baby that he would be given frankincense. But we also find frankincense in the anointing oil that is used to anoint the priesthood, the sons of Aaron. And so if the gold speaks to the kingship of this baby, the frankincense speaks to the priesthood of this child. This is not just going to be a a king, a, a glorious king. This is going to be a person who will intercede and will be an intermediary between God and man, between the infinite and the finite. He will be the priest that we need, the high priest that we need, who will give us access to the infinite and will also advocate for our behalf to the infinite. He is a priest and a king. But the third thing we see is myrrh. And myrrh is mentioned several places in the scripture, but one of the important places it shows up, and it actually shows up in Jesus' story later on at the end, is myrrh is something that is used to anoint bodies for burial. And many of the, many of the scholars and commentators over the years have agreed that this myrrh represents the fact that Jesus was born to die. He is the answer to the, to the things that we are seeking. Many people would say, uh, how do I know if God exists? I haven't been given proof for God's existence. Uh, I, I, need a, I need a message from God or I need some sort of proof. Jesus is the proof. He is the revelation of the infinite. He is pie. You know, he is the... He is the hay needle, the, hay, the piece of straw in the haystack revealed to us through the revelation of the infinite to us. He is what we're seeking. Jesus is the evidence. He is the evidence that we are seeking. When the Apostle Paul stood on the Areopagus, he told the Athenians, you don't know the unknowable God. Let me tell you about Jesus. He told them about Jesus. So if we want to find God, if we want evidence for God, we look to Jesus because he is God's revelation. He is the revelation of the infinite. But also, he is the solution to the problems and pains of this world. This is what the myrrh represents. You know, many folks, including myself, wonder how God could allow so much pain in the world, so much suffering in the world. Like, why doesn't God fix it? Well, Jesus is God's plan to fix it because he was born to die. As we, as we mentioned in the confession of sin, he gave his infinite life 
He lived, he lived a perfect life. He gave his infinitely valuable life to serve as a payment to buy us back out of our debt. He gave his life. He suffered for us in order to redeem us. And the Bible tells us that he is right now making all things new and will return in glory to judge, to, to, to hold account all the wicked things that have been done in this world and to make it all right. God is fixing it. And he's, he's fixing it through Jesus. Um, there's, a, there's a parable that I was trying to think of this week and was able to finally get been Google to my will uh, with with the help of Chat GPT. I won't tell you that story. You can ask me after. But uh, I found the parable. It's it's a it's a parable, uh, a sort of self deprecating parable. It's told from the perspective of Christianity, but it also shows up in a you know Jew, Jewish context or Hindu context. Um, but it's called the parable of the drowning man. Uh, in this parable which is kind of a folk parable. It doesn't, it doesn't attribute to any one author. It has many different versions, but I'll tell, you, I'll tell you my version. There was once a man, and he lived on the, near the coast uh, of the country. And a, and a hurricane was coming in, a great storm, and so there were warnings uh, that were coming in, and there was great flooding predicted, and where the man lived was going to be inundated with water. And so the man began to pray that he would be delivered from the storm. And as he was praying, uh, some people came by and knocked on his door and said, the governor has declared an evacuation. We're all being asked to leave. And the man said, no, I am believing God. I am praying that God will deliver me from this storm. And so the storm came and the waters began to rise and, and, and came by the house National Guardsmen in a, a big Humvee that could still make it through the, the water that was rising. They knocked on the door and they said, this is your last chance. Please come. And he said, no, I am believing in God. I'm praying that he will deliver me from this storm. And so he continued to pray. The water rose and he had to go to the second floor of his house. And as he was praying to be delivered from the storm, a boat came by and people were in the boat and they said, please get in the boat. This is your last chance. We want you to be uh, we want you to be safe. And he said, no, I am believing God. I am believing God and praying that he will deliver me from this storm. So then this, the waters continued to rise and he had to go on the roof. And he climbed on the roof of the house. He was clinging to the chimney and a helicopter came by. And they, they lowered the rope ladder. It was a sheriff. And they said, this is your last chance. You have to come if you want to survive. And he said, no, I am praying and believing God will deliver me from this storm. And then the man drowned and died. And when he, because he was a pious man, he went to heaven. And he stood before God and he said, God, I was faithful to you all my life. Why didn't you deliver me from the storm? And God said, well, I sent people to your door to ask you to evacuate. I sent, I sent National Guardsmen in a Humvee. I sent a boat by to save you from your upstairs window. And then I sent a helicopter. What more do you want me to do? And of course, the point of this story is told in a self-deprecating way uh, for Christians who are sort of looking for a miraculous intervention when God uses means. But I want to flip this story around a little bit. Oftentimes people are looking for solutions, looking for answers, looking for evidence, looking for revelation of the infinite, of the almighty. If, if I could be shown proof, if I could be shown existence, I would believe 
And often people are wondering why God won't fix the pain of this world. Why he isn't doing anything about it? And of course, the answer that I've been presenting to you is that Jesus is that. Jesus is the boat that comes by. He is the helicopter that comes by. He is the answer. He is the infinite revealed in the finite. And if we continue to insist on other answers, we're like the man sitting on the roof of his house wanting another kind of deliverance when God has provided. He has provided the answers of the things that we are seeking. So Jesus is the infinite revealed in a way that we can grasp. And he is God made flesh, fully God and fully human. And he is the answer to all the things that we are seeking. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please rate and review us on your podcast service and share with anyone who may be interested. The intro and outro music for the New Life podcast is provided by Sandra McCracken with her permission. Please visit her website at sandramccracken.com. We'll see you next week.